If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. From Birds Canada, this is The Warblers. This is The Wake Up Call, a special podcast series from The Warblers by Birds Canada. I'm Andrea Grass. And I am Andres Jimenez. We'll be speaking with experts about why these species are at risk, what conservation actions are being taken, and what we can all do to help. Today we are exploring piping plovers. Which you all had to know was coming because I slip them into the podcast constantly. So finally, I get a plover episode. When I'm not podcasting, I'm coordinating the Ontario Piping Plover Program for Birds Canada. So piping plovers are an incredibly captivating species of shorebirds that nest not just in Ontario, but also in the prairies and in the Atlantic. They are considered endangered in all of the provinces where they breed. So we know from a 2019 report, the state of Canada's birds, that 40% of all shorebirds have declined in population. So when we think about protecting the habitat of piping plovers, that's also helping to protect other shorebird species as well. The plover population globally is around 5,000 to 8,000 individuals. The smallest population by far is here in the Great Lakes. We had 74 nesting pairs across the Great Lakes in 2021. But like I said, they nest across the country. So we've brought in a couple of people to help us understand the unique challenges plovers face everywhere in Canada. So you're going to recognize Janet Ng from our episode on ferruginous hawks. Hi, Janet. Hey, how's it going? Good. So glad to have you back. If folks haven't listened to her first episode yet, go check it out. She works with hawks, but also with piping plovers for the Water Security Agency in Saskatchewan. And we've also got Laura Bartlett joining us, and she's the Nova Scotia Program Coordinator for Birds Canada. And so she'll fill us in on the Atlantic side of things. Hi, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you both of you so much for joining. So let's dive in. Let's help folks figure out what these birds are. Janet, could you describe a piping plover for me. The first word that comes to mind when I think piping plover is plump. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a shorebird, but they're one of our more round shorebirds. So they've got the long orange legs, but their bodies are um, small and they have a lot of roundness to them, kind of chonky birds with long little shorebird legs on them. Uh, they've got a sandy colored back, so they blend in really well. If they just stop and sit down in front of you, they just it looks like they disappear off the beach. And then they've got a bit of orange on their beaks, a little bit of black on their beaks. And then they've got a black forehead band that kind of cuts over their uh, between their eyes and a black band that goes across their chest. Very cute. Very, very cute. Floofs is another great term for them, I think. And I find people often mistake them for killdeer, which is a, a pretty common shorebird and like ground nesting bird across the country. But they don't only nest on beaches. They'll also nest in like your backyard or along a railway track. And killdeer are a little bit bigger. They've got two breastbands instead of the one. But they're also very shrill and kind of almost awful sounding, if I'm being honest. Like killdeer will be screaming at you. 
if you are approaching their nest. Whereas a piping plover is going to make this cute little you know, I, that was a terrible imitation. Can you guys do a better imitation? <laughs> Not for a podcast, no. Sorry. <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. No, um, thank you. So, Laura, what made you fall in love with piping plovers? I had a chance to first work with piping plovers when I was doing an internship with Parks Canada here in Nova Scotia. But they are just such an iconic species here. They're actually on our specialty conservation license plates in the province. So they are iconic. They are adorable, as Janet already mentioned. And once you start to watch them and you get to know them, you they have such personality. They've got attitude. They're a little bit sassy, I find. It's so funny watching them throughout their breeding season, and it's hard not to fall in love with them. Couldn't agree more. Could you tell us a bit about like their nesting characteristics? Here in Atlantic Canada, at least, they like sandy, cobbly beaches. Um, they like places that they can hide a little bit. They don't like dunes that are too high, which is a common occurrence here in Nova Scotia as well. But typically, they will create a scrape in the ground, which is literally what it sounds like. They create just a little, they scrape the ground. Sometimes they line it with shells or other things. Sometimes it's bare. And in that small depression, they will typically lay four eggs. The males and females will take turns incubating the eggs until they hatch. Chicks are precocial, which means they are born uh, somewhat self-sufficient. They can run around and feed themselves, but they don't have, uh, they can't fly and they don't have their specialized feathers. So they need protection from mom and dad to make sure they're safe and help regulate their body temperature. If the nest fails for some reason and it's early enough in the season, oftentimes they will re-nest with only three eggs this time. For everybody trying to picture some of these behaviors, the scraping is literally the males scrape, kick sand with their feet. They just kick it away and make a little divot. And it's adorable and it's incredible. And they're peeping the whole time to try and attract a lady to that little area. Peep, 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 peep. I also really like with these birds, the females put a ton of work in laying the eggs, of course, right? And then the male helps with incubation. They share that pretty equally. But then once the chicks hatch, the female will often take off early for migration. So after a couple of weeks, she's like, peace. I've done my hard work. I'm going down to Florida or wherever else. And then the male sticks around to raise the chicks into little teenagers all by himself. Egg laying is energy intensive, so they have earned that vacation. How is the Atlantic population doing? It's actually doing okay in Nova Scotia. This year we had 54 pairs, but if we're looking at all of Eastern Canada, we have about 178 pairs, which is much lower than our recovery goal of 310 pairs that we're aiming for. Okay, okay. And do they nest in Quebec as well? They do. So Eastern Canada includes... Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, a little bit of Quebec, and also St. Pierre and Miquelon, which is technically part of France, but that makes up the Eastern Canada range of piping plovers. Awesome. And then they also nest into the States as well. Absolutely. And how about the prairies, Janet? How is the population doing out there? They've dropped a lot in the last few decades. So in 2016, in the last big census year, they do a big census every five years. Some groups will maybe do an annual survey, but the five-year survey is this like gold standard that tells us what's going on everywhere. In Manitoba, the 2016 survey found fewer than 20 pairs, and that's down from 200 individuals, so down from about 100 individuals from the 1980s. I'd say that it sounds like the Manitoba population has always been a little bit smaller. In Alberta, 
they found uh, about 120 individuals, so maybe about 60-ish pairs. And then Saskatchewan, we're more central. So we've got more piping plovers and we've got some really fantastic habitat for them to come hang out in. In 2006, they saw about 1,400 birds. And then fast track that 10 years, in 2016, they saw 800. So they saw actually about a 50%, just well, 40 to 50% decline in individual seen across census. That's that's a really big loss. That's a huge loss. Like a, what I was saying, you know, 40% of shorebirds are declining and, and we're absolutely seeing that out there. Oof. Brutal. Yeah. And in the Great Lakes, we've got, you know, we're a smaller population than the prairies in the Atlantic. 74 across the Great Lakes last year, but that's including the states. So Michigan's a hot spot for them. In Ontario, we had four pairs. <laughs> so it's quite a different situation in managing, um, you know, a couple of pairs versus managing a larger population. Janet, what do you think's driving that population change? Oh, unfortunately, I think with piping plovers, it's one of the stories of a thousand cuts. There is a lot of concern about climate change because climate change has so many cascading effects from extreme weather to rising water levels to perhaps changes in habitat, changes in food availability too. Piping plovers also have a really tough time with predators. As camouflaged and like well hidden as they are, they are they're just little popcorn morsels while they're out there. I experienced this one. Not that I ate one. Sorry, let me rephrase this. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that. When I first saw tiny little like two-day-old piping plover babies running across the beach, it seemed almost impossible because as as Andrea said, they're just little puffballs on legs. And at the time it was just, oh my goodness, you're so vulnerable. And suddenly I realized like danger is everywhere. <laughs> they're susceptible and there are things that'll eat them. And, and unfortunately, they are really prone to human disturbance too. And I think the folks out, like we see some of that in the prairie provinces for sure. There's recreation on some of the lakes and some of the beaches that they nest on here. But as I understand it, it's a it's a really significant problem out east where your populations are. Yeah, definitely. It's radically different. Like in Ontario, we can have tens of thousands of people on a piping plover nesting beach. And we've set up, uh, you know, like a little fence around the nest going 50 meters from the nest in all directions, you know, hitting the water often. So it's a bit smaller than that even. Uh, and then otherwise, on the side of that fence, there are people bustling right up next to it. There's people walking along the shore in front of the, the nest. So when they get those little chicks, those little puffballs running around, they're trying to forage along the shore where the best bugs are. They're trying to take shelter and rest in the sun or in the in the colder days, and, and they've got people just left, right, and center. So it, it's pretty, pretty crazy in Ontario. I don't think it's quite as bad in the Atlantic. What, do we, what would you say, Laura? No, it's a little bit different here. We kind of run the gamut of really remote beaches and really popular beaches, depending on where the nearest town or city is. So the beaches that are close to Halifax, for instance, historically supported piping plovers, but due to the rise of human use and the increased development of, you know, bathrooms and parking lots and boardwalks and things like that, the birds have now abandoned those sites and started uh, showing up at other more remote beaches. So that's how we see the impact of human disturbance on piping plovers in the Atlantic, really, is that they'll just find somewhere else to go, which might sound like an okay thing. But in reality, in Nova Scotia, about 70 to 80 percent of our coastline is privately owned. And so those 
those protections that maintain the quality of our beaches are not in place across the province and across Atlantic Canada as well. So it's not great that they have to shift their habitat to accommodate human use. And human use is increasing at all beaches across the province as well. So eventually, they're going to run out of places to go. Yeah, it's kind of nicer if if you've already got, say, a provincial park that's got nice protections in place. It's nicer if they can continue to nest there undisturbed and not feel pushed out. Exactly. And not all habitat is created equal. They really like that nice sandy or cobbly beaches and lower dunes in Atlantic Canada. And not all of our beaches are like that. Some of them have really steep cliffs. Some of them have pretty extreme tides. And so there is a small subsection of our beaches that are actually good habitat for piping plovers. And those are experiencing a lot of changes um, just in the environment with climate change. But people like the sandy beaches too. And so the human and piping plover interact actions keep happening. What are the natural threats like in the Atlantic? We have certainly predation is an issue here as well. Like Janet mentioned, they're really vulnerable to all sorts of different uh, species like raccoons, foxes, birds of prey, gulls, ravens. Uh, We've even had reports of a deer eating um, eggs. So lots of different threats. Here in Atlantic Canada, we've actually stopped using nest exclosures, which are basically like cages put over a nest to prevent predators from getting into it because we have predators that can get into these exclosures. And also the really intelligent birds and other predators started recognizing the exclosures and hanging out outside of them. So the numbers showed that they weren't as effective here. So we stopped using those. And now it's just a matter of managing the predation. And also, again, human disturbance comes into effect here because a lot of the animals that prey on piping plovers um, are also drawn to human presence, like gulls who like to feed off of human trash. So by making sure people throw out their garbage, they can actually help predation issue as well. That's super. Such a simple thing makes a big difference. Yeah, the gall situation is quite a a problem that we've got here because we've got these little fenced off areas for the birds, uh, for the plovers. But then, of course, uh, galls flying overhead, they're like, hey, check out that little sweet stretch of beach that doesn't have any people on it. I'm going to go hang out there. And then we end up with a much larger amount of galls hanging out near the piping plover nesting site than we'd like. Unlike the Atlantic, we do use predator exclosures. So it's yeah, kind of like a big cage that goes over top of the nest and the adults can run in and out and the chicks can run in and out when they hatch, but it protects the nest while they're incubating. But yeah, having just a high predator abundance really close to the nest is tough to deal with once those chicks hatch and the chicks will go anywhere. They can run as soon as they hatch and they boogie. It's it's unreal. This is why I, I hired 19 year olds <laughs> to help me in the field is that they run much faster <laughs> than me. Uh, so so that's that's my helpful tip of the day. Now what does your field work look like, Janet? Last year was my first first field se- season with piping plovers. I've worked with shorebirds before, but not these little guys. And it was really interesting. It was really fun. The environment and the system was cool. And piping plovers were just, yeah, they reeled me in with their charisma. It was it was like, I'm you know me, I'm a raptor kind of. Mm-hmm. Well, I like all birds, but like I've worked on raptors for a long time and I was like, well, look at that. Oh my goodness, I would die for you. <laughs> and so the, the switch was pretty fast. Um, 
I still like all birds. We start with surveys. We do nest surveys in early in the spring and summer. Then we monitor nests. We do use nest exclosures, which is new for me as a tool, conservation tool, which was really interesting. And then as nests hatch, then we follow those little foof balls around until they're 18 to 25 days old. Uh, and then they fledge the area. Like Andrea said, as soon as they hatch, like I remember coming up to the first nest that had hatched and I was unprepared because they were 550 meters away from their nest. And when I saw them, they were, there's like dust bunnies under my bed that are bigger than them. And I was like, this couldn't possibly be the same nest that I'm supposed to be looking for. <laughs> but it was the only nest on the beach. And so these little piping plovers just boogied to excellent foraging habitat. And there they, there they were. <laughs> they get really hard to track once they get faster and bigger. That's in a nutshell, most of most of my summer. My very first summer working with piping plovers was in Saskatchewan as well. And I remember like at the time it was like, oh, plovers, there's lots of plovers on this beach. This is really cool. And I'd go from, you know, there might be a beach that had two or three nests, say, within a couple hundred meters of each other. And so I'd be watching them and I'd start to see the the families interacting and they can get pretty territorial. Like they can get feisty and mean to each other for getting into each other's turfs. And so watching that and trying to figure out, okay, wait, wait, which which chicks belong to who? Are you guys the nest that I think you are? Like, oh, this chick looks like you might be five days old and that one might be seven. So, oh, you know, trying to figure that out is kind of chaotic. And then I go to Ontario where we maybe just have the one nest and all of the chicks are banded here. So I can tell, you know, even if we had a couple of pairs side by side, we'd still be able to tell them apart as individuals. But it's it's pretty different in the prairies. So, Andrea, do you think it's possible that piping plovers might be nesting elsewhere in Ontario at some of the more remote and less busy beaches? That's a good question. We do get asked that a lot. Obviously, the pairs that we find, they're really, it'd be hard not to find them because our beaches are so busy. But there's lots of remote islands up in like Lake Huron, Georgian Bay, Lake Superior, where they could be nesting. But like I said, uh, we do band all of the chicks. So they've all got unique bands and with a good photo or someone with good eyes and a scope, you can tell our piping plovers apart as individuals. About 95% of the Great Lakes population is banded. So if there was a major nesting site that we didn't know about that was producing lots of fledglings, we would be seeing an influx in unbanded birds nesting in the population the following year. But we don't really get that many unbanded birds. We get a few every once in a while, but they're not common. So that kind of makes us think that we probably have found the major nesting sites. Are there ones we're missing? For sure. There's going to be some plovers on those remote beaches, but probably not like a, a big breeding site. You banned them in the Atlantic too, right, Laura? The banding work done in the Atlantic is done by the Canadian Wildlife Service, and we support their work by reciting the bands or letting them know when we've seen a bird because they also have unique two-digit flags. So that banding project started a few years ago and they haven't put any new bands out in the last three or so years. So there's fewer and fewer birds with bands, but it's nice to have those bands because we're able to identify individuals and we can follow them and uh, see who they're mating with, um, come up with stories about them. For example, we have our flag bird HL. She 
is from southern Nova Scotia, and adult piping plovers typically return to the same beaches year after year, but not HL, who we affectionately refer to as Helen Louise. She started in southern Nova Scotia, flew up to northern Nova Scotia, which is like hundreds of kilometers away, had a nest there, came back to southern Nova Scotia. Last year, she was in southern Nova Scotia, and then we found her around Halifax at one of the major beaches, and she didn't nest at all. She was just stopping around at all these different beaches like a tourist. So it'll be interesting to see what she does this year, if she decides to settle down, or if, you know, she's out to see the sights and the beaches. (laughs) I love Helen Louise. Was that (laughs) named after anyone, or just had a good ring to it? No, her flag was HL, and so Helen Louise... Um, just kind of rolled off the tongue there. So you can speak sternly to her too when when she's like shows up late at the beginning of the season. Helen Louise, come on, where now. have you been? <laughs> you you had us worried. You should have called. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we learn lots of really important, helpful information with the banding effort, but getting to know the birds as individuals is incredible, too. We've got this one guy. He might be my favorite. His name is Blue, and he hatched from Toronto Island in 2018. And he's got a little blue dot on one of his bands. And he was also really sad his very first breeding season. He came back to the province in 2019, and he couldn't find a mate. And he looked really blue. And uh, photographers kept catching him at different beaches. And every time I was like, oh, it's a gray skies. He's just there on his own. He looks so sad. And in the following year, he found a mate at Darlington Provincial Park, and he's been nesting there since. And and it's a really good dad, as it turns out. He keeps fledging all of his chicks. Yay, Blue! I'm glad that that story has a really happy ending to it. It does. I'm really happy for him. <laughs> Is there much banding out in the prairies? There aren't any current banding projects for piping plovers out here, but every so often, every year, it seems we have one to two, and last year we actually had three banded individuals show up at Lake Diefenbaker. Uh, And I just looked up one story that I've got here because it was so interesting. So this was a bird that uh, was nesting nesting out there. And uh, we don't have a cool name for him yet. He's otherwise known as R52 because that's his little, which I think sounds pretty cool. And so this individual... Uh, that's cool. It sounds like a... like a Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And so so we spotted him nesting on Diefenbaker and we reported the band to the National Banding Office and we got to hear a story, which was just one of these like the science, this aspect of science, I think, is just so amazing and magical. So we connected with these other researchers who had originally captured and banded him. So he was banded as a two-day-old chick on the Missouri River in North Dakota in June 2014. Wow. And then he was recited again in North Dakota 2015-16. And then he moved sites in 2017-18 and uh, moved sites again in 2019. And then we saw him breeding in Diefenbaker in 2021. So, A, that's a pretty old bird. Yeah, he might be the oldest one I've heard of. Yeah? Yeah. What a, what a veteran. Uh, and so so I think he, if I remember correctly, I'd have to check, but he had a good summer. So hopefully we have him back. Hopefully we were good Canadian hosts to him. We'll be right back. How do you like your coffee, Andre? Cream? Sure? I like mine bird-friendly. Certified. Then I have just the brew for you. Birds and Beans Coffee Roasters only use beans from farmers who keep the native forest habitat intact. Growing coffee in the shade of a variety of native trees. That's good for migratory birds. Good for everyone. This coffee is even certified by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. It protects biodiversity, supports sustainable farming, and it's fur trade and organic too. Ah, not to mention delicious. 
deliciously bird friendly. If any of our listeners also like their coffee bird friendly certified, here's how to get it. Order online at birdsandbeans.ca slash warblers. Make sure to use the slash warblers because that means birds and beans will also donate 10% of the purchase price to support this podcast. You can also use the link on your podcast player. Sounds great. Andreas, how about another cup? Let's do it. Laura, have you noticed uh, like your volunteers falling in love with the individuals to the same degree that the three of us all have? Oh, absolutely. Some of our volunteers have been with the project for like decades now. They love following the birds because they get to know the individuals or, you know, they live by important beaches. And so they get to really connect with the birds and the beach and, and monitor these changes over time. And they also know that the data they they collect goes directly towards our information and our knowledge and how we conduct our conservation efforts as well. So our volunteers have a huge impact on our program and we love our volunteers. They are amazing. Same. Absolutely same here. We we often have our nests, you know, we've only got a handful of them each summer and we've got volunteers watching the nests all summer long. Like we've got all these people on the beach and a big, big tool for dealing with the human disturbance threat is outreach. And volunteers will just hang out by the nest. They'll chat with people. They'll help people see the little chicks through a scope, uh, hand out stickers and like temporary tattoos, things like that, uh, and really just help people fall in love with them. And that's that's been a really essential thing for the program. That personal connection makes a huge difference when you're talking to the public. And versus out in the prairies where you don't have that level of human disturbance. So you're certainly not out there giving out stickers of piping plovers, are you, Janet? No, it's a different type of outreach. In my job, we we encounter people and we talk about it. Nature Saskatchewan is a nonprofit uh, that works here in the province and they have plovers on shore program. So they're, they're doing a habitat steward program with different ranchers and farmers in different parts of the province where maybe piping plovers uh, nest or otherwise live on their land. One of the threats that we see on the prairies is actually degradation of habitat by cattle. It's so strange. I didn't really believe this when I first heard it. Cattle come down for water and they leave big footprints in the mud um, coming up to these water bodies. They can also kind of disturb the vegetation and just change sort of what used to be good for, for piping plovers may not be the same. But one of these bizarre threats that you don't encounter, or you don't think you're going to encounter, is that piping plover chicks fall into the hoof prints of cattle and they can't get out. There are so many tools in the toolbox to help mitigate things like that, like watering systems and fencing. Uh, and so Nature Saskatchewan has worked with a lot of landowners throughout the province to improve uh, cattle management for pipe plovers. Uh, and so, and, and outreach is a massive thing about that. Because again, if you try to convince somebody that tiny birds fell into footprints, you would, <laughs> that, that takes some convincing. But I was actually out on Diefenbaker um, after a bit of a rain. These hoof prints can be, some of them were going like up my shin and maybe even up to my knee. And so when I was out checking this nest, I was like, I felt compelled to actually check every single hoof print out of concern. I did not find any tiny little floundering piping plovers. They probably dodged it. But if you were a piping plover walking on the beach, your perspective is just suddenly a sinkhole that's appeared out of nowhere. Yeah, a threat that's that's more, I think, probably more unique to the prairie provinces. Absolutely. It is safe to say that uh, our plovers are not going to fall into cattle hoof prints. People who have dug holes in the sand absolutely can create uh, a challenging obstacle for our chicks. But Yours is, that's a unique one. 
I had never heard of that before, but that kind of makes sense. We have an issue at a fair number of our beaches with vehicles driving on the beach. And obviously the vehicles themselves can pose a threat because they're not going to be able to see a chick or a nest. But the tracks they leave behind too, chicks can get stuck in those tracks as well, just like the hoof prints. So yeah, it's wild that cows and vehicles could have a similar impact, I suppose. Yeah, in in kind of like unpredictable ways. It's not things that I've really considered because I walk over footprints and and ruts in the road. But I guess if you were two centimeters high or three centimeters high, that's the perspective. And reminding people that they can't fly yet. You know, it takes them three or four weeks before they're they're really going. And uh, they're just like a little golf ball falling in a hole. Oh, my heart. Poor babies. (laughs) Okay, real talk, guys. What needs to happen in your region to positively impact the piping plover population? Oof. This is a tough one because, like Janet mentioned earlier, it's kind of death by a thousand cuts here. Like, there's a lot of little things that would add up to make a big difference. So it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing. I think maybe in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada, you know, the coastline and beaches are a really integral part of our identity and our culture and our history. And so there's precedent for using beaches as a place for recreation and a place for livelihood, but it's very human-centered way of looking at these ecosystems. And so if I could wave a magic wand, uh, I think there could be a really fundamental shift from seeing beaches as important places for human use and to remember that there are also critical ecosystems and habitats for so many different plants and animal species, not just piping plovers. And it's not just about getting humans off beaches or away from these sites. It's about using them responsibly and respectfully for the other animals and plants that use and depend on these areas as well. So it's about sharing the shore, and that would take a huge undertaking from everyone. But I do think it's doable. Hashtag share the shore, everybody. Yeah. What about out in the prairies? The big category of threat that piping plovers encounter in the prairies and everywhere is habitat loss. Uh, There's a lot of other factors involved, but habitat is so integral. So one of the things that I've seen that I think is really hopeful and really important that's um, developing in the last few years is the understanding of not just habitat in the breeding areas, habitat in the wintering areas, but all the habitat in between that's needed for migration. These migratory birds have often a long ways to go and they stop and they eat and they rest. And so having safe, productive places for them to to do that is so important. Um, so more recently, I've had sort of a, a peek into some of the work that folks are doing across um, North and Central America. It's called the Mid-Continent Shorebird Conservation Initiative. And it's a group of extremely smart people from all over that are bringing ideas and concepts and tools, uh, research and information, and just inspiration to, to work on these important topics about connecting bird populations and making sure that everybody's got everything that they need in between. We haven't even talked about the wintering grounds at all. Great Lakes birds tend to head down to the Gulf Coast. Florida's a big hot spot. One of my favorite birds, Flash, he's down in Alabama every single year. Who'd have thought? Uh, and then your Atlantic birds are kind of a similar area and then dipping into the Caribbean. And then the prairies, correct me if I'm wrong, they're going down to like Texas and Mexico, right? Yep, that's right. I heard recently um, a new climate change based challenge that's popping up for these birds is that... 
often their overwintering sites, say in Florida, will be at like a national park or a state park or something, somewhere where the habitat's protected. You know, there's no vehicles allowed on the beach, things like that. Uh, And then a hurricane will batter that beach and that whole area. And that changes the way the habitat looks. So the area that was protected because it was such good habitat might no longer be great overwintering habitat. And the good habitat might shift into an area that doesn't have those kinds of protections. Hurricane Dorian hit us, what was it, 2019? And it hit Nova Scotia, but before us, it hit the Bahamas where all our piping plovers were overwintering. And so we're still trying to understand the effects of that storm on the population and the habitat, both here in Nova Scotia and down in their wintering grounds. It makes me worry about climate change as well with increasing storms and their severity too, just what that means for the birds. So many challenges. From the extreme weather perspective, this was a new one for me again, connecting these geographic dots. So our hydrologists in our in our agency have informed me that the snowpack in the mountains, so a province over, has twice the amount of snowpack as a normal year because of the atmospheric rivers that we've all read and seen in the news in British Columbia. So these atmospheric rivers that have just wreaked havoc in parts of BC have deposited a lot of snow in the mountains. And I've been following the news, I get it, but once that snow melts, it's going to travel down river, downstream, downhill, and arrive at Lake Diefenbaker. That part of the equation, we still have some forecasting and I've got some risk assessment work to do. But yes, those those atmospheric rivers that we've all been hearing about could potentially have some sort of impact on piping plovers in Saskatchewan. How can listeners in your region help piping plovers this summer? Laura? I think the easiest thing people can do is to read the signs at beaches. Even if you go to that beach every day, the signs are usually there for a reason, whether it's to protect you, the environment, or the species that live there. We're very careful to put up signs around nesting areas, and so just read the signs and follow them because they weren't put there arbitrarily, and keep away from any of these roped-off areas. In terms of human disturbances, keeping your dogs on leash would have a huge impact as well. Even the friendliest dog looks like a predator to these birds. And then stick to the water's edge or the wet sand when you're walking and that way you know you'll be avoiding the sensitive nesting area and don't drive on the beach or walk your cows on the beach i guess too (laughs) absolutely uh and janet how could listeners in the prairies help the piping plovers all the same things that we see out um, out in Ontario and in the eastern regions. I'd also just holistically give animals their space, watch from a distance and be respectful about it. Lots of people are curious about piping plovers and I'm 100% here for it. And I will happily show you binoculars and spotting scopes to get a look at them. Just we, we're going to keep our distance and, and let them let let piping plovers do the little plover things. Yeah, that's a great rule for wildlife absolutely anywhere you are. Give them space. Don't go chasing after them. It makes a huge, huge difference. I want to give a shout out to just all the different volunteer programs that this species has. Usually in the spring, different programs start recruiting for volunteers. So have a look near you. If you think you're near a piping plover nesting site, look into organizations like Birds Canada. Janet, you mentioned Nature Saskatchewan. Might that be someone people could look into? Yep. And Alberta Conservation Association has great piping plover work too. Look at different organizations. There's heaps of people involved in the Atlantic, I know. And if you're listening from the States, same same goes to you. There's going to be potentially volunteer opportunities in your city or in your local parks. So have a look at those and potentially you can go out and spend a summer 
watching piping plover nests, which is kind of like the sweetest volunteer gig out there. There are worse ways to spend your time volunteering than at the beach looking at cute birds. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. I'm so excited that we finally got to do a piping plover episode. Thank you for having us. Warblers is produced by Andres Jimenez, Jody Allaire, Andrea Greff, Ruth, Friendship Keller, and Kate Goldfish. This episode was edited by Greg McLaughlin and engineered by Katie Jan, with the music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nico. Until next time, keep birding. <laughs>